Um, I really want to thank Siri and everyone at CFRI for inviting me to talk today. This has just been the most special conference to attend, and it's hard to follow all of the lectures that have proceeded. Um, but I hope to talk to you all today about advances in mRNA therapy. And I was invited to give this talk at the CFRI conference a couple of years ago. Um, and I was thinking about this today, and my goal was really to try to unscience this for myself and uh, everyone who's listening as best as I can. Um, because I think one of the most critical things for us to consider as a community is that the true advances of these therapies really come from the bravery and the courage of clinical trial participants. And I'll talk about that more at the end. Um, it's so exciting to see the research and development and the science advance. Um, and yet we are only able to move uh, new drugs through to approval because of the participation of people in clinical trials. Um, so I really welcome questions because my goal today is really to help the community feel as comfortable uh, with these new classes of therapies and development and going into clinical trials as I personally can. Um, so some basics about mRNA or molecular biology 101 in 102 slides, but um, we're really starting with just the basic principles of we hear uh, frequently about DNA, RNA and proteins. And so this slide is really just showing from left to right that DNA is tra uh, transcribed into RNA through re reverse transcription. You have the double-stranded DNA structure and the self-replication. But as we go forward, like we're gonna talk about today, there's transcription to RNA, and then that's translated to typically in a healthy uh, situation, a functional protein. Uh, so ultimately uh, today we're, our focus is really on the RNA and messenger RNA in particular. So to take a little bit of a deeper dive into this, the punchline here really is that mRNA instructs translation to protein. And that's what we have to think about over and over as we think about mRNA therapeutics. Um, but walking through this, you can see the portion that's here in the nucleus and you see the double-stranded DNA structure that's transcribed into single-stranded RNA that still has intronic regions that are not gonna be uh, coded for. And then there are the portions that are actually taken in splicing so that you have mRNA, which is only the coding portion. Uh, that actually has these uh, A's at the end here and that's called polyadenylation. And that's really to make this more stable uh, so that when it's exported out into the cytoplasm, that's the location or area where it's translated into uh, amino acids creating uh, polypeptide chains. And those are folded into protein. And again, what we're hoping for is to see the folding into functional CFTR protein. So when we think about mRNA as a therapy from that process, what we're really thinking about is that we're seeking to express a protein that is mutated in the patient or non-existent or underexpressed because we have some patients who don't make any CFTR protein or are not making enough of it or it's dysfunctional. And so what we're seeking to do is replace the mutant CFTR mRNA with correct CFTR mRNA so that we can use the cell's own machinery and take advantage of that and create a functioning protein. And so that's really the process that's uh, outlined here. And so that's using the cell's machinery, particularly the ribosomes to create the desired protein. And that's really the advantage of using mRNA as a therapy and leveraging leveraging what's happening already in the cell. 
So if you'll bear with me, this is hopefully the most uh, science that we're gonna get into the weeds for here. Um, but this is a typical kind of structure here with the five, five prime cap and you see these two areas that are the eukaryotic translation initiation factors. And so these are really just key in attracting the ribosomes and starting this process that starts at the five prime cap. And you can see that there's a start code on here and this ribosome is already traversing along and will eventually uh, finish at the stop codon. And then this is the poly A tail that creates stabilization in the poly A binding protein. And the way that this works in terms of delivering mRNA as therapy is shown on the right. So here's a nanoparticle delivery vehicle that's encapsulated mRNA for a given desired protein. And this is entering into the cell and it's taken in into an endosome which is then releasing this lipid nanoparticle. And the intention is for the delivery vehicle to then degrade so that you have a release of the mRNA. And the cell really now hopefully doesn't have too much recognition of whether it was supposed to come from here as it was intended or if it's been released uh, and brought into the cell, but we'll talk about that more as well. And the ribosome then uh, translates uh, that into the protein so that you have a desired protein that may either stay intracellular may be secreted extracellularly, or in the case of CFTR, as we hope, that it will be uh, trafficked to the transmembrane and located there where it can function properly as CFTR should. So that's a little bit about how mRNA functions and how it should be working. But as we talk about mRNAs of therapy, it's easy to start maybe conflating that or possibly even confusing that with uh, different forms of nucleic acid-based therapies that we're hearing about more uh, increasingly. And we've heard plenty at this conference as well about gene therapy, gene editing. So I wanted to take a minute to try to discuss what mRNA therapy is relative to these therapies and how it differs. Um, so there are several differences that are very basic that should be considered with nucleic acid-based therapies in CF. mRNA therapy, as we just said, uses the cell's existing machinery to produce a functional protein. Gene editing, as we've heard about at this conference as well, corrects the genetic defect at its source in the DNA itself. And gene therapy is using a different form of a Trojan horse instead of the lipid nanoparticle. Um, this is off, often using a viral vector such as an adeno-associated virus, lentivirus, or other viruses to deliver CFTR uh, into the cell. But there's uh, specific considerations that we need to think about when we're talking about mRNA versus uh, DNA-based therapies. And one of those is the permanence of the therapy. So DNA-based therapies uh, may provide long-term expression of the gene, and the length of that term of expression depends on actually the cell turnover, as well as the type of viral vector that's being used. But mRNA therapies are really more transient, and that may actually pose its own advantages. Um, so we'll talk about that, but this is really something that's intended as repeated dosing. And the delivery of these is also different. As I said, DNA-based therapies are typically more considered uh, to be delivered by viral vectors, whereas mRNA therapies are delivered by lipid nanoparticles generally. So what do these look like? This is uh, just an example from a graphic that was provided uh, by Translate Bio in this nice review that's cited here. So if you're wanting to familiarize yourself, this is just actually a really great one pager to be able to look at and access. 
but this is really showing the content with the lipids and ethanol and the mRNA and buffer that are actually combined. And for this particular structure, this is uh, layered that, as you can see here, there's lipid bilayer and uh, mRNA in this lipid nanoparticle that's then also uh, covered with polyethylene glycol to help the uptake into the cell. Um, but just one schematic of what this may look like from, uh, and these will vary from different companies. Um, so mRNA therapies, of course, like anything, have their own pros and cons. And so when we think about the advantages of them, mRNA therapy helps to make uh, proteins druggable in terms of making, uh, it enhances the druggability of these intracellular or transmembrane or secreted proteins. Um, it can restore gene expression, ideally, without the risk of genomic integration. And it has drug-like behavior in the sense that you have this ability to repeat dose and adjust the dose and dosing interval. Um, so endogenous post-transcriptional modifications is certainly still science speak, um, but what that really means is that we already have our own mechanisms for uh, adjusting the proteins as we are going to need to. And so the fact that that still already is going on in the cell uh, through correcting the folding or glycosylation or trafficking actually decreases the risk of immunogenicity or reacting to the drug that is being delivered. Um, there's minimal changes to the manufacturing process for multiple targets. So once the system is in place, that is an advantage. Um, and that can also lead to rapid development from the target gene selection to the product candidate. And we actually got to see some of that experience during the COVID-19 pandemic, which we'll talk about. Um, but there's also challenges. So the stability of mRNA is really one of the drawbacks. It's quite susceptible to degradation. Um, the delivery uh, has to be considered in the sense that lipid nanoparticles have to be tissue specific and biodegradable. And we've already talked a little bit about the immunogenicity. So there's the risk of activating the immune system with toll-like and retinoic acid-inducible gene-like receptors uh, because the body clearly recognizes that this is not its own. Um, and then there's also manufacturing challenges because it is difficult to achieve high quality and highly pure mRNA with scalable manufacturing processes. So there are plenty of pros and cons to consider. Um, but we've been very fortunate, uh, even in the silver lining of the cloud of the pandemic, which uh, we just recently had the end of the public health emergency from in May, um, we had a lot to learn from mRNA advances during that time. And I think that you know there was a lot of reservation during the COVID-19 pandemic about these mRNA vaccines being a very new therapy. And there's a very nice timeline that's available from the NIH. If you go to their website and actually just look up uh, mRNA timeline, you can actually see how since its discovery in 1961, there have been so many milestones along the way that actually brought us to the ability to then get into a rapid speed during the pandemic. And now I think that we're catapulted forward to be able to look at this in additional applications. Um, so this is just a little bit about where we've come from and where we're going uh, with mRNA therapies. And I think one of the most exciting aspects now is that we are learning more and more about how to take something good and make it even better. Um, so there's chemical modifications that can be done to improve the efficacy of RNA drugs by at least three mechanisms. And one is that these can be chemically modified to decrease the immune activation. Two is that it can increase drug stability and therefore the duration of the effect or potentially decrease the frequency of dosing, which I think most patients and families want. And then three uh, is the opportunity to influence the affinity by which the RNA drugs bind to other nucleic acids and proteins. So just a little bit of an example about how these can be modified chemically to uh, try to mitigate immune response. So chemical modifications can be made to these at positions that are naturally modified already in us in our mRNAs. 
One example of that is that mRNAs that are endogenous to us are typically modified in the cells at the five prime cap uh, in just one location of it. And mRNA drugs are also modified at the five prime end, and I'll show you that. Um, but these five prime cap modifications have already been used to try to decrease the activation of innate immunity. And they can often be divided into three types, cap zero, one, and two. And so this is just a little bit of an example about that. And here you can see that that five prime cap uh, that I showed you where the process really starts in translation uh, is shown here. And you can see that there's uh, different degrees of methylation that can occur or uh, modification at the five prime end with the intent to try to decrease the immune uh, activation that can occur. There's also the opportunity to modify the poly tail and poly A tail. Um, so researchers have actually used techniques like tail seek to get so detailed as to study what the number of adenines or what the most advantageous poly A's length is to enhance the stability of the druggable mRNA target delivery. Uh, and that's actually been found to be 50 to 100. So that's just one more way that we're using new advances to be able to identify how to stabilize these therapies and make them the most efficacious for patients. And then lastly, there's coding sequence modifications that can occur also. And all of these are intended to optimize the delivered mRNA. But I'll, I'll pivot for just a second uh, over into where we've really uh, heard the most about mRNA in mainstream. So this is actually representing pre-pandemic where there was already discussion of scientists developing mRNA vaccines against cancer. And like I said, those are really the early histories of mRNA therapy uh, in research. Um, but here, of course, is a cover that I think most people recognize with really the pivot towards developing mRNA vaccines during COVID-19. And I think that this is really a great example for uh, lay discussions of concerns that came up of, you know, how much does this get into my DNA or how much is this affecting my genes or genome? Um, so I thought this was really great saying that this is, uh, the vaccine is like a most wanted poster telling your body how to recognize COVID-19 through the spike protein mRNA that was delivered. It doesn't get into your DNA and it won't change it there. And I think that's one of the most important distinctions to make again. So it's, it's hard to forget uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. I know it's really just behind us. Um, I actually remember that was my last visit here. I think I had a delightful afternoon with Dr. Jeff Wine. Uh, and then about two days later, I called to see how he was doing because the news was just erupting with more. It was February of 2020. And he said back in his email, uh, we have something called a shelter in place order. And I never realized how familiar all those words were going to become. Um, but I think that it's very clear that the development of the COVID-19 vaccines really led to the survival and the saving of many lives through that pandemic. Um, so this was clearly developed against the novel coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus during the pandemic. And this rapidly evolved again because of that timeline of looking at lipid nanoparticles for drug delivery or understanding the advantage, understanding the advantage of mRNA and cancer vaccination campaigns. Um, so the COVID-19 vaccine was developed and had emergency use authorization, and that timeline progressed rapidly so that the vaccine was already distributed in December of 2020. Um, but for anyone who was less familiar with how that worked, um, this is the second of three times that you'll see this scheme of this lipid nanoparticle carrying its cargo and how this works. 
Um, so this was just titled Special Delivery and Science. Um, two apparently successful coronavirus vaccines are using fat bubbles called lipid nanoparticles to deliver mRNA into cells. And once there, the mRNA directs the cells to produce the virus's spike protein, provoking an immune response to that foreign protein. Uh, and you can see that here, this is just a different design of a lipid nanoparticle carrying the mRNA, the ribosomal translation of that to create the spike protein. So this was a great success story in real time that we've witnessed. And also I think that we're gonna understand long-term some of the safety effects and those effects on toll-like receptor activity and more. Um, but it certainly spurned interest. So this slide <laughs> well, probably deserves a second to take it in. I'm hardly gonna try to go through it all, um, but this is actually updated as of March uh, and is not exhaustive according to the person who put this on Twitter, um, Andrew Panu. And this is really in 2023, the number of companies and biotechs that are engaged in looking at RNA therapeutics across the landscape. And you can see the wide variety of types of RNA-based therapies that can be approached here. And our focus today is definitely on messenger RNA, um, but also through the many phases of uh, trial and all the way to approval. Here you can see Pfizer and Moderna from the two vaccines that we were just discussing all the way to approval. And I can tell you that this is already a little behind because down here we can find Vertex, one of our sponsors here today, uh, that has already gone into clinical trial. And I'll talk about that a bit more. And I made sure I could also find, let's see if I can find it again, Arcturus is right here. So that represents uh, the two that are currently in clinical trial. So this is already progressing quite quickly. So here we are with many of these different uh, development and treatment opportunities that are coming about, but how do we weigh this in cystic fibrosis? What does it really mean to take that over from a COVID-19 experience and into CF? And that's what I was hoping to talk about next. So when we think about nucleic-based, uh, nucleic acid-based therapies and the case for CF, we have to really consider a lot of the complexities of cystic fibrosis that make it challenging. There is actually kind of an ideal target or an ideal candidate, so to speak, for a genetic-based therapy, and that really is a monogenic disease or a disease in which one gene is really responsible for the disease and its progression, and it's expressed primarily in one cell type. And I'm sure you can understand why that would be the most convenient type of situation so that you replace that gene and you're targeting exactly the defect and the cell type. If you go all the way to the right, you're really looking at the most complex scenario, which is really a genetically unregulated polygenic kind of type of disease with uh, cancer that can be affecting many cell types and evolving. Um, so cystic fibrosis, I really love this schematic um, because it really represents how I scientifically think about cystic fibrosis most certainly. Um, it's often written as a monogenic disease, but I think you know it's really more complex than that. As Daryl said, my research is really focused on non-CFTR modifiers as well. And I think we understand pretty well today that you know really it's a confluence of many genes that are affecting the disease overall uh, in particular the cell types that are involved in the lung. Um, but most certainly it's indisputable that it's caused by one gene, the CFTR mutations uh, in the CFTR gene that are leading to the disease, which also affects many cell types. So it's complicated with CF because again, this is caused by mutations in CFTR, but it's expressed in multiple cell types and affects multiple cell types and organs. It's even more complicated because that uh, single gene, the CFTR gene has many different forms of mutations that can be affecting it and causing the disease. 
And on top of that, in terms of the prevalence of those mutations, we now understand that there are more than 1,000 CFTR variants that are demonstrated in less than five patients each worldwide. And so this makes it very challenging when we're trying to think about how to address specific mutation-based therapies. And that, that's after having significant success as a CF community of watching uh, mutation-based therapies advance in CF and bring health to many, but not all people with CF. Um, so this is familiar, I think, to many people, but for anyone who's still uninitiated to talking about CFTR mutations, um, this really shows the healthy process of that transcription and translation leading to CFTR that's trafficked to the cell membrane and having appropriate chloride trafficking. Uh, but this really reflects the most common, excuse me, <laughs> class two here reflects the most common mutation in the United States, the Delta F508 mutation, where this is leading to misfolded CFTR protein. Uh, and if we go backwards to class one, this really reflects many of the patients whom we know still suffer from CF and aren't eligible for modulator therapies that are able to work here to help with the misfolding, as well as here to help potentiate and make protein that has made it to the cell surface membrane work. And these are drugs alone, like Ivacaftor, or in combination, Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor, or more commonly, Trikafta. And it's very important to just make so clear for patients and families that those are CFTR modulators. They work when there's a protein to work upon, but they're not nucleic acid-based therapies or genetic therapies or mRNA. And those are really the situations where we need to focus when we don't even have a protein that can be acted upon by a modulator. And it's also important to emphasize that across these classes, there are still mutations that are not treatable by modulators because of the nature of the protein or its lack of available binding sites for such drugs. So this is the third time. And so hopefully after this, it'll really be embedded. Um, but ideally this is how an mRNA therapy would work for a person with CF. So here you can see that the mutated CFTR gene would be transcribed to its effective mRNA. And in the body's natural process that would uh, either be uh, translated into mutant protein or potentially even degraded. Uh, before that process could happen. Um, but the goal with mRNA therapy is that there's inhalation of this lipid nanoparticle into the lung, that that would be taken up into the cell and the lipid nanoparticle degrades, the mRNA is released, and once again, this uses the cell's own machinery to create the CFTR protein, which is taken to the cell membrane and is properly functioning to uh, traffic chloride. But there's challenges before that can really be happening so easily with uh, CFTR mRNA delivery. Um, number one, there's a thick mucus barrier that has to be penetrated. And so these lipid nanoparticles have to make it to the proper distribution. And Dr. Akuda gave a brilliant talk yesterday talking not only about uh, the variation in the lung anatomy, but really the heterogeneity of the cell types. And that's another challenge that we face when we're thinking about defining the optimal target cell that these mRNA uh, deliveries need to get to. So here's an example of a schematic that shows the thick viscous mucus that's lining the CF airways. And not only does this lipid nanoparticle have to get to the right location, escape the potential uh, uh, macrophage or uh, phagocytosis, I'm sorry, of, uh, of a new uh, landing into the airway, but also needs to get into the proper cell type, which we are now understanding more about submucosal glands and secretory cells and make it into the right cell so that CFTR is being put into the environment. 
Other challenges also include the fact that, as we said, CF is really a multi-organ disease. So today we know that the average life expectancy in CF is more than 50 years, but that's also largely due to treatments that have been associated with replacing pancreatic enzymes, enhancing nutrient absorption, managing bacterial infections, and that cause the chest to be cleared of the mucus. So when we think about mRNA therapy, we know that extrapulmonary treatments will still need to continue because mRNA therapies in CF are really targeted towards addressing the pulmonary disease because that's the leading cause of morbidity and mortality. Um, but we actually anticipate that additional treatments are still going to be needed. Um, so to treat exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, we think people will still need to take pancreatic enzymes or to address intestinal malabsorption, those that need it will still need supplemental vitamins. This certainly is not expected to address CF-related diabetes, of course, uh, inhaled into the lung. And so we fully expect that insulin and oral hypoglycemics may still be necessary in treatments for CF liver disease accordingly. On top of that, we also know from experience with Ivacaftor and watching patients over time uh, and, and, and under study currently with Trikafta, that there is the potential need for recurrence of uh, bacterial infection or new emergence of bacterial infection in the existing diseased CF airways, particularly in adults, for example. And so we know that even with mRNA therapy, there may still be a potential need for ongoing management of bacterial infection. And there are still a few more barriers to address. So in terms of immunogenicity, we have to think about the potential development of anti-CFTR antibodies, uh, because this is again, something new that's been put into the cell and T cell responses as we've discussed. And there's also reactogenicity to consider against the lipid nanoparticle itself. And we already have some early examples of that. And so I'll cover that next, but I've talked a lot about a lot of challenges and I don't want to make it sound like this is impossible. I think that it's important to recognize that we become better aware and have a better understanding of the degree of these challenges, how much we can overcome them and what the nature of these events may look like and how to modify as we move into clinical trials. And so that's the last part of what I'll talk about today. Um, so mRNA therapy and CF clinical trials is here. And I think that that's a pretty incredible statement um, we've been watching this evolve over the last several years, and this is really the, the, time, the, the four trials that I can cover, the QR10, which was from ProQR, uh, Translate Bio's MRT5005 program, and then Arcturus and Vertex Moderna collaboration, uh, both are currently in clinical trials, so I'll discuss each of these a bit. So ProQR was really in the first of these and they completed a phase 1B open label multi-center exploratory study. And this was to estimate the effect of intranasal delivery of QR10 on the nasal mucosa in restoration of CFTR function. And so this is uh, maybe considered to be both proof of concept because this is a nasal delivery, but there's also uh, some question about whether or not we can see efficacy because as many as in this room know, early gene delivery trials were also conducted intranasally. Um, but as with any phase one trial, the purpose here was really to look at the safety and tolerability. Um, so this was the, the primary endpoint here was to also to look at the within subject change from baseline and total chloride transport measured by nasal potential difference uh, in the nasal epithelium of adults with CF who had at least one copy of the Delta F508 CFTR mutation. This was completed in 2016, and then the company went into partnership with Galapagos in 2018, um, but there has not been further advancement of the QR10 uh, program. 
I think what we heard about most uh, in recent years was uh, Translate Bio or the MRT5005 or Restore CF program. And so MRT5005 is a codon optimized human CFTR mRNA that was formulated in the lipid nanoparticle. That was actually the particular example that I showed earlier uh, that was delivered via inhaled nebulization for delivery into the lower airways. And the Restore CF trial is a phase one, two clinical trial in adult patients with CF in the United States. And the results of the single ascending dose portion of the trial showed that data that was included one month after follow-up from the last nebulized dose of MRT5005 or saline showed that it was generally safe and well-tolerated at the low and mid-level doses. The lipid levels actually in the blood showed encouraging data that there was delivery through the mucus so that we could see that there were levels uh, systemically in the blood that were being picked up. And four of the nine subjects did have increases in percent predicted FEV1 within eight days after the treatment that was considered to be higher than what we might expect just for baseline variability in FEV1. However, uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, published in the Journal of Cystic Fibrosis, we have the full findings of uh, the phase one, two study. Um, so in total, this included 42 adults that had two severe class one and or two CFTR mutations. And the uh, adults with CF who are participating in this all had FEV1 values between 50 to 90%. Um, so to give a little bit more detail, those that were in the single ascending dose cohort had a range of 8 to 24 milligrams. The multiple ascending dose cohort had five weekly doses, uh, also in a similar range, slightly less on the upper end. And there was also a daily dosing cohort of five daily doses of four milligrams. And this was a three to one randomization. So you can see that 31 patients had uh, the drug delivery versus 11 received uh, saline. And 10 of the subjects actually had 14 febrile reaction events. Um, these were mostly moderate in nature and a few were mild, uh, but two of the subjects did discontinue on the basis of these febrile events. And two drug-treated subjects also experienced hypersensitivity reactions, which were conservatively managed. Uh, so these showed urticaria or rash across the skin accompanying fever. Um, there was no evidence of anaphylaxis based on a lack of oral mucosal swelling and as determined by the data monitoring committee. Um, and both were conservatively managed and able to be resolved within one to two days. Um, the most common treatment emergent adverse events were cough and headache, um, but unfortunately there were no consistent effects on FEV1 that were observed. So in sum, uh, at 28 days follow-up from the last dose, this was considered to be generally safe and well-tolerated, but there were these febrile events noted and two instances of hypersensitivity, and offsetting that against what was not clear evidence of a significant FEV1 change, uh, there has not been further movement for the MRT5005. Um, Arcturus is currently enrolling healthy participants in New Zealand for their phase one study. Um, so this has been supported uh, also in collaboration with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And so um, ARCT-032 is another inhaled mRNA therapy for CF. Um, and again, this is open and enrolling in New Zealand uh, with up to 32 participants. And the primary objective of the study is to assess the safety and tolerability at four dose levels. And the enrollment of the first two cohorts has been successfully completed. Um, so those participants were dosed successfully with no significant adverse events that have been reported to date. Uh, and it's stated by the company's most recent press release that the, it's expected to complete the full 32 subject uh, study enrollment in healthy individuals in the, by the end of the second quarter of 2023. So that actually would have been just very recently. 
And we've seen this coming along the way in the news, actually even pre-pandemic. So here in 2016, even you can see that Vertex and Moderna had established a collaboration uh, to discover and develop mRNA therapies for cystic fibrosis. And I think it was an exciting time for the community to see that uh, in December of 2022, uh, Vertex received its IND approval from the FDA uh, to proceed. And so there is now an open clinical trial of VX522 uh, that is testing this Vertex Moderna collaboration. Um, so this is a phase one single dose escalation study that's evaluating the safety and tolerability of VX522 in people with CF who are 18 years and older with a CFTR genotype that is not responsive to CFTR modulator therapy. This is clearly an advance because this is the first clinical trial of mRNA therapy in CF. Um, the study started in uh, February of 27, 2023, and uh, as stated in the clinicaltrials.gov website, it's anticipated to close uh, in January of next year. Um, the enrollment is estimated at nine, and there are nine sites that are recruiting in the United States. Um, so we certainly have uh, moved into a different era in our testing. So we've talked about advances in mRNA therapy, and I just really wanted to close by talking about what does this mean for hope on the horizon for cystic fibrosis? And so why are mutation agnostic treatments like mRNA therapy important to advance for CF? And I just think that we have to go back and remember that less than 20% of encoded proteins can be addressed by the use of a small molecule therapy, such as uh, CFTR modulators. And while those modulator therapies have advanced the treatment significantly for people with CF, in the United States alone, we know that there's at least six up to 10% of people who are not genetically eligible to take modulators based on their CFTR mutations. But in addition to that, there's an untold number of people because we don't have enough data collection of people who are unable to tolerate CFTR modulator therapies because of adverse events that may be anywhere from mild to very severe in nature, uh, but whatever the basis for a given individual, and we heard Ray's story and I've heard Laura's story before of uh, people who had such hope and optimism to take a therapy like this, but then been unable to tolerate, we still need to keep going clearly. And lastly, because we know that there are global estimates of about 80,000 people with CF in the world, um, I actually think that's an underestimate. And so we actually really need to think about the genetic heterogeneity and being able to find treatments that will help all people with CF. So just to expound on these points a little bit in closure, we've seen this a lot. So we know that up to 94% of people with CF in the US could benefit from a highly effective CFTR modulator. Um, but like I said, anywhere from six to 10% in the US alone are still waiting for their highly effective treatment. And again, that's really because their genetic mutations are such that they are not able to even make a protein that can be acted upon by these drugs. And as we've said, there are even more excuse me, <laughs> there are additionally people who are unable to tolerate it and we don't know the numbers of those individuals. Um, as Dr. McCauley also talked about, it's critical that we're finding answers for people who have genetic ineligibility for CFTR modulator therapies because that disproportionately affects minoritized people in the United States. Um, so these are data from the most recent CFF patient registry. Uh, the 2021. And so and you can see that in the total number of people captured there, 
there's about 8.6% that are reflected to have non-white race or Hispanic ethnicity as reported in the registry. But when you restrict that uh, in those years to the population that is CFTR modulator ineligible, excluding those uh, with lung transplant and pregnancy, you can see that that is significantly higher percentages of people of non-white race and Hispanic ethnicity. And so I think we need to be very thoughtful about making sure that we are finding equitable treatment approaches. And lastly, I think also as Dr. McCauley covered, um, the global prevalence of CF is likely underestimated. And we've brought that up, I think several times in this conference. And it's one of the great things about CFRI, I think is the, the recognition of the diversity of cystic fibrosis. And I think uh, to me that's reflected here because this, this map shows the incidence of cystic fibrosis according to the World Health Organization recently. Uh, and so you can see these huge swaths as Susanna also showed of places that are just completely uncharacterized and we have no reason to believe that CF actually doesn't exist. Uh, furthermore, uh, we actually would really think that the incidence of this is far higher, for example, in cases like India. So we simply know that this is not sufficiently characterized and we need more mutation agnostic treatments to be able to approach everyone. So uh, we need new therapies for all people with CF. And I think that's why there is hope on the horizon as we look at these advances. Um, but in closure, I really wanna say that, again, these advances don't happen unless we have people participating in the clinical trials. So the advance of the science is incredible, um, but we are where we are today with cystic fibrosis therapies because of the courage of people who participated in trials. And I think as we move into a new chapter of testing these types of therapies where it may feel like less is known uh, or that there are higher risks of uncertainties. It's so important to have conversations and dialogue where we can have better understanding with patients and families so that questions can be fully asked and people can participate to the extent of their desire and that so that we may be able to move therapies like this into approval. And so with that, I just really wanna say thank you to all of the people that are involved both in the development of these treatments uh, as well as all the patients and families who participate in the trials and it is just my humble honor to serve somewhere in between. Thank you.